Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ladies and gentlemen, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to a special guest talk on the Pakistan Geostrategic Review with your host, Zaki Khalid. The subject for this episode is the post-COVID-19 operational environment. Since the emergence of the novel coronavirus, we've been reading reports about how this pandemic has directly impacted the military operational environment, whether it is higher defense planning, force posturing, annual military exercises, technology acquisitions, or aspects related to strategic deterrence. By and large, we can say that the global security calculus itself has been disrupted. Pakistan has already been living in a turbulent neighborhood. The onslaught of COVID adds further uncertainties to its threat matrix. To understand these regional ramifications, I am delighted to invite Dr. Adil Sultan. Dr. Adil is director at the Center for Aerospace and Security Studies, CASS, in Islamabad. He is also the founder of strafasia.com, a prominent global affairs forum based out of the UK. Moreover, Dr. Adil is a visiting research fellow at King's College, London. Sir, thank you very much for giving us your time and welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Sir, most welcome, sir. Sir, my first question to you is, the emergence of COVID has already disrupted plans for force modernization, etc., which I've mentioned in the introduction. How much of an impact do you think this will have for armed forces in third world countries, particularly South Asia? Over to you, sir. Thank you, Zaki. Uh, yeah, it's a relevant question, like you said in your introduction, that uh, COVID-19 has probably disturbed global security matrix. But if we see uh, the events preceding this current pandemic, there was lots of talk about NATO's role in security uh, or the U.S. Uh, security assurances for the NATO country. So there was already a chatter about the credibility of the United States as, uh, as an ally which would help NATO countries in times of crisis. And mm -hmm. we during the, these crises that once the European countries or the major US partners, they needed support of the rest of the world or at least the United States, which is leading global power, they were left on their own. So probably yes. this thinking is going to affect NATO in both traditional and non-traditional security issues. Uh, just to give you a background, uh, some of the talks about within the NATO countries, discussions about um, especially uh, the U.S. credibility under President Trump. So there was talk about whether the United States would be able to come up to NATO's rescue uh, whenever it is needed. So there were talks, some studies done, whether NATO countries would have their independent deterrence, some suggesting that probably France can take over. But these are all hypothetical questions, and these were before the current. Now, after this, yes, one thing is for sure, that U.S. has failed its leadership there, not only for its allies, but the rest of the world also, because it is itself facing an existential threat, and it is finding it difficult to manage this uh, pandemic. Uh, if we talk, uh, if we... Look towards South Asia. India has projected itself to a major strategic partner of the United States. What 
But just yes. one example, where India, uh, where the United States uh, wanted India to hold certain medicine, which is seen as a magical uh, pill for Kobe. Uh, yes, uh, hydrochloroquine. Yes. So there was some reluctance, natural reluctance within India, because they also need such kind of medicines themselves. But the kind of statement that was made public, it exposes the hollowness of the strategic partnership that on one issue, President Trump came in that there would be consequences if India doesn't do this. So you can imagine yes. uh, what if there are there is a conflict of interest between India and United States on certain issues. So these strategic partnership, uh, I don't think so they're going to bear that pressure. Now, the specific question about post-modernization, uh, post-COVID, and during even this crisis, we have seen that India, this deal has been finalized, where India is buying Harpoon Block 2 missiles and NK-54 lightweight torpedoes, worth $1.5 million. Uh, and this is during a time when the world is not thinking about traditional security issues. They are all focused on the, uh, to manage this existential uh, threat, which is a non Indeed. Uh, threat. Indeed. But even in these times, these military industrial complexes or the pressure of these uh, industries, and probably for uh, as part of military diplomacy, that uh, India went ahead and U.S. and India announced this deal. We all understand that these military developments are not new, and these are part of the strategy to contain China and India at the Oshawa region. But mm -hmm. there's also another side to this. There was lots of criticism on India because it uh, finalized the deal for $5.43 billion worth of S-400 from Russia. And uh, United States yes, was very absolutely. Yeah, United States was very happy because it violates their uh, the act of countering America's adversaries through sanctions act uh, that we commonly see, uh, known as Katsa. So this deal could be to ease that pressure, to reduce that criticism, uh, because according to this act, any country which buys any military equipment from Russia, Iran, and North Korea, which are seen as adversaries to United States, they could be, they could face consequences or sanctions. But what we are seeing in India's case, there are special provisions, as always have been in other instances also. Mm -hmm. so India is probably given an exemption in this. But this is interesting that when everyone is talking about how to manage pandemic, these two countries are dealing in military hardware. Um, whether other developments, whether the other uh, procurements would go online or not, I don't think so, uh, especially the Rafale aircraft that India wanted to buy from France. Yes. It was supposed to be in India by May 2020, but since the major uh, producer of the plants in uh, France, they are under lockdown, there are delays in the production, and it is not likely that India is going to get its Rafale, the much cherished Rafale aircraft, because it has been now politicized. Wherever we, uh, whenever we hear statements, absolutely, political leadership, they emphasize that there would be a significant shift in uh, regional security environment after the induction of Rafale aircraft. But I think this this. Uh, would be delayed by at least uh, a year, if not a few months. 
and this could also delay the plan of uh, they were phasing out MiG-21, the MiG-21 the same year that, that one of the MiG-21 was shot by Pakistan in April last year. So these are quite obsolete aircraft and uh, India wants to phase out, but before that India wants to procure new aircraft. <clears throat> Sorry. So this is going to be, and there is going to be a delay in the purchase mm -hmm. of aircraft or the procurement of these aircraft. <clears throat> Sorry. On the other hand, if we see the Pakistani side, uh, sir, Pakistan military has relatively less ambitious plan towards the post uh, modernization. My apologies. So I don't think so. There are going to be any significant significant implications on whatever interesting Pakistan military is doing um, because it didn't buy on this. Uh, didn't go on this buying spree of force modernization in recent times. Whatever they are procuring is first. The policy is very clear from the Pakistani side that it doesn't want to match weapon by weapon with India. So whatever we are doing is that's the minimum requirement and that's very uh, long-term plan. Yes. Gradually moving. So there is going to be implication on the Indian side because it had very ambitious plan of building itself as a regional power competing with China. Uh, and it entered into uh, it, it was spending about 60 to 70 billion dollars even more on defense procurements. So all these procurements are going to be delayed and it is going to definitely affect India's overall force projection that it want that it was probably aspiring that within a couple of years it would be able to mm -hmm. project these new uh, military induction as something that India has moved beyond and it is now ready to uh, transfer. Indeed, indeed. Sir, um, thank you for this uh, insight at a broad level. Now, um, my next question is actually going to be a bit specific uh, when we talk about our eastern neighbor, and that is India. Mm -hmm. And um, India's first and incumbent chief of defense staff, General Bipin Rawat, he was given the responsibility to complete theaterization within three years. So we're talking about uh, 2023. Uh, we understand that the Indian Air Force has long resisted theaterization process. Uh, amidst the COVID pandemic, do you see this process being delayed? Yes, I think so. Like we said, uh, if there are going to be delays in induction, there are going to be delays in operationalization of these uh, whatever equipment that India was planning to buy. And it is going to affect their overall strategy. And as you it's, would understand that all militaries, they continue to evolve their military posture as per the threats that they perceive. But India's case has been quite interesting. Uh, if you see from the very start that uh, yes. whatever strategies it has been developing, there's lack of coherence uh, between within the three services first, and then there are there are visible frictions between the military and the civilian bureaucracies in India. So that's indeed. And we also see the personality of General Bipin Rawat, who has elevated himself. He probably asked for his elevation and to be appointed as Chief of Defense Staff. Not that India was not planning for this appointment, but we know how it was politicized, how General Bipin Rawat uh, played uh, the military card and to align itself with the BJP policies to 
create that space for himself to be. So General Rawat is very well known for making statements which are not uh, close to uh, reality. Uh, he has been coming about in, with ambitious plans and about surgical mm -hmm. everything. But on this theaterization, um, again, it's uh, it's something that I see that it could be on the drawing board. Uh, it might eventually materialize also, but there are going to be significant difficulties once it comes to operationalization. Why I say this? Mm -hmm. That uh, the infamous gold star doctrine that India propagated in 2004, yes, and then subsequently modified into proactive operation strategy. Even that doctrine, after practicing for the last 15, 16 years, every year India used to conduct it, they have not been able to streamline the working or the operational um, working between the three services. So there is. Uh, significant friction among the services on how this doctrine will operationalize in times of crisis. And that was reflected during these, these, uh, the last year crisis also. When India, mm -hmm. instead of opting for cold star doctrine, it went for surgical strike, introduced another uh, different uh, kind of a strategy to deal with Pakistan. Uh, so um, I don't think so. What General Bipin Rawat is Saying or he's wishing that military, because uh, uh, as you rightly mentioned, the friction between the forces, the air force that was not taken on board once India was or the Indian Army was developing uh, its gold star doctrine, and we could see different statements coming from the air force commanders also. Now we are talking about the joint commands, which would be led by uh, some of the senior officers, whether it would be led by the military army or the air force or the navy so that's going to be another tricky point and uh, do recall that the politics behind cds department once general bipin rawat was uh, vying for this there were lots of talk mm -hmm. the, the statements coming from different services who should head this cds department uh, absolutely but, yes there was yeah so that's that's if it could happen in on the CDS. I, I see similar kind of uh, problems uh, once it comes to theaterization because they uh, have said that probably they are going to have this uh, theater command towards this to cater for the sea threats. So who would be heading that, whether Army, Navy, or the Air Force? Then the Air Defense Command, where the S-400 would also be part of that command. Uh, as of now, we know that the, it would be under the Air Force, but again, there could be politics or the institutional interest. So it's all on the drawing board as of now, I see. And as, uh, as we talked about the previous the procurement processes, they have been delayed at least for one year or so. So when that equipment would come and that would be operationalized and that uh, integrated into respective commands and then decided who would head that, and again, for which, what is the purpose um, against China or Pakistan? Or it's just a political purpose to show that India has a coherent decision making, which I have always doubted because there is a clear dissonance between the three principal stakeholders, the political, military, and the scientific establishment, because the DRD also plays a very important role once it comes to the operationalizing of different equipment. 
So how yes. would the idea would be integrated into these commands or the strategic capability, how that would be integrated into these strategic commands? But lots of unanswered questions. I'm not saying that it cannot happen, but if you see the track record, I don't see it is going to be uh, significant or uh, something which can uh, bring some cohesiveness uh, within India's free service. Interesting, interesting. Yes, um, some very pertinent um, aspects you've uh, highlighted over there, sir. And uh, yes, it's indeed right because when we look at uh, the whole concept of theaterization, it started uh, sometime uh, immediately after Kargil when they uh, constituted the Kargil Review Committee. And it took them 20 years to actually uh, finally reach the stage where the three stakeholders, which you've mentioned, they finally reached a consensus that, okay, now it's time to uh, adopt theaterization. And this uh, natural pandemic or whatever you may call it, it has just further delayed the process, at least um, uh, along the lines which uh, you have uh, mentioned uh, with your insight that uh, it could be delayed uh, on what parameters. It, um, these are indeed very interesting observations. Um, yeah, sir? Um, just to add on to this. Sir. Uh, I, I, sir. It's good that you mentioned about the past history also. One important factor is uh, while, while India is developing or trying different uh, ways to bring cohesion between mm -hmm. free services. The one important factor is uh, South Asia is a nuclearized region. So there's no space for war between at least uh, between the two nuclear powers between India, Pakistan or China if we see it, uh, in terms of uh, theoretical or the perception that uh, India tries to build that China is a principal adversary. But we all see that all this posturing is towards Pakistan. And over the past several hmm. years, one lesson that came out is that there is no space for war between two nuclear armed adversaries, that is India and Pakistan. So if there is no space Indeed. for war, why this whole posturing or the reposturing of Indian military and against who? So then it becomes a big question mark where it's exercise kind of a, on a drawing board or to build in or to build the credibility of India's military that it is capable of fighting a war. Whereas under a nuclear environment, I don't think so. The, India can uh, engage in a war with Pakistan. Indeed. Um, so my next question is, um, I'm going to zoom out a bit from South Asia and look at the uh, overall Indian Ocean region. Uh, we've been hearing since long about uh, uh, the U.S. trying to operationalize its uh, uh, focus on the so-called Indo-Pacific region. And uh, the U.S. Navy has, as we all know, has been worse hit by COVID among all the armed forces uh, in the U.S. So the, it, it has prompted many Chinese and American analysts to speculate that its maritime assertiveness uh, in this region will be adversely impacted. Um, although Pakistan does not really uh, factor uh, its maritime threats as much as we'd like to see in the press or um, in uh, strategic publications, but uh, this is important because just recently um, uh, I've been covering about uh, uh, legislation in the U.S. Congress about focusing on the Western Indian Ocean region, which is our part 
in the North Arabian Sea, in the South Arabian Sea. And we have statements by U.S. lawmakers. They say that um, the Indo-Pacific, according to them, it stretches from um, California to Kilimanjaro, so which basically covers our whole region. Uh, so what is your opinion on this? Do you think that uh, the, uh, America's maritime assertiveness in this region, uh, in the waters where we are located, will it be adversely impacted? Um, not as necessarily as part as a result of this COVID-19, I would say, because uh, uh, the coronavirus, what has done to the U.S., Maybe is it's kind of a temporary thing. I think that's uh, not on the United States um, because their aircraft carrier um, Roosevelt uh, it suffered the most 600 people tested positive. But this is this something uh, all navies are facing. The French carrier was equally affected. But in terms of Overall, India's uh, or United States' reliability in Asia-Pacific uh, region, that has always been questionable, reason being, and especially if you link it with the current pandemic, uh, the way United States uh, has uh, dealt with its uh, partners in East Asia, Southeast Asia, like, and uh, South Korea and Japan and things, there were always reservations about security guarantees by the United States in, in case there is a major conflict with China. So there had been mm-hmm. question marks about these things. While the United States have gone uh, extra a mile to assure these allies, it will stand by them. But again, it's quite difficult for uh, United States to maintain the kind of dominance that could uh, give assurance to its allies also. At the same time, it could project itself as a credible uh, power in Asia-Pacific region, or as they say, Indo-Pacific region. They have what they uh, have named the region now. I, I believe uh, by renaming this region, they have, in a way, given opportunity to China also to play equally important role in Indian Ocean region, because earlier it was mm-hmm. the Pacific region. Yes, China was always claiming its right in that region, but since the time United States and India have started to uh, name this region as Indo-Pacific region, so China can also become a two-ocean power now, and it can claim its uh, presence in the Indian Ocean region. So this mm-hmm. strategy, in a way, probably has affected India's interest in the ocean region more uh, than before, because now, uh, since India is claiming that it wants to play a role in Asia-Pacific or the Pacific region, likewise, China can also claim that if India is coming to the Pacific region, so China has also the right to play its role in the Indian Ocean region. So, sir, um, I'd like to specifically, um, I'm sorry sorry to interject, I'd like to specifically uh, uh, need your insight on the fact that uh, uh, basically when we talk about the Indo-Pacific, now um, the Western Indian Ocean part of India's seaboard, and which is essentially takes uh, covers from East Africa till uh, Mumbai, Maharashtra, and along the Western seaboard. And this is an area where uh, the Indian Navy and its doctrine has uh, overall been saying since 2009 that they 
claim themselves to be the net security provider in the Indian Ocean region, whether it is the Eastern Indian Ocean or the Western Indian Ocean. Mm. But uh, and recently we've heard reports that um, the Indian Navy was very interested in appointing a liaison officer for the first time in history at uh, uh, Naval Forces Central Command. Now, Central Command, India has nothing to do with Central Command, and uh, it was Pakistan which has basically been part of this process in Bahrain. So, um, th- uh, basically, in this context, do you think that uh, the the part where India wanted to ensure with U.S. support as a guarantor that it would get the patronage to exert its uh, hegemony in the Western Indian Ocean, do you think that that will also be impacted, or is it just uh, it, it would be an exaggeration to infer that at this point? Yes, uh, we have seen these statements, but uh, you have to differentiate between India's aspiration and its capability. India aspires to be an Indian Ocean power. Yes, it wants mm-hmm. the rest of the world to believe that uh, India could be a net security provider in this region, especially in the Indian Ocean region and more specifically towards these smaller countries. But India does not have the potential as of now. Uh, just a point to refer to General Weapon Rawat's one of these statements, that while the Navy wants yes. to have a third aircraft carrier, General Rawat um, made a statement that probably he would prefer Indian Navy to have more submarines than the aircraft. Now, we also understand that aircraft carrier is something kind of a power projection too, because all the Absolutely. Powers, yeah. So, India wanted to use that aircraft carrier or having more aircraft carriers to project its power beyond Indian Ocean region to these smaller countries. But again, there is a disconnect between what Indian Navy aspires and what the CDS is saying and other stakeholders in India say. So like India's military posturing had been, if you take from the nuclear and the conventional military, it wants to be seen as kind of a global power or emerging global power where it could guarantee security of the smaller countries in West Asia or African countries. But for now, India does not have the potential. And Mm. the government that it is doing uh, for the foreseeable future, there are disconnects between India's strategy and its uh, capability and things like that. So giving statements is not sufficient, uh, I believe. And that doesn't make India a great power. India has lots of uh, hurdles to cross before it can claim its rightful place or equivalent power mm-hmm. the power comes. Interesting insights there, sir. My next question is, uh, uh, we are witnessing a surge in virtual meetings among various military commanders. Now, some uh, institutions have been using uh, commercial software. Some have developed their own solutions. But anyways, this would obviously imply that cybersecurity is going to become even more critical than it was before COVID. Um, In your view, will it necessitate the armed forces in South Asia, I'm not just talking about Pakistan, but South Asia as a whole, to shift the paradigm and prioritize investments in cyberspace? Or do you think that the traditional fighting services will retain their dominance, like the infantry or the armored corps? Uh, I'm saying this in the context because... um, what many have uh, observed is that um, the uh, engineering elements, the um, medical elements, the signals elements, and these, they're more or less uh, considered as supporting services and not given the as much as an importance which their fighting arms have. What would you like to say on that? 
Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, and not only relevant to post-COVID environment where we are moving more towards uh, cyber technology, of course, as a compulsion. But even before this current pandemic, there was lots of talk about new technologies or emerging technologies and how these technologies would impact the warfare. As of now, yes, the fundamentals of warfare are not going to change. That's one point. All these Interesting. Yeah, all hmm. these technologies, they are kind of facilitating, supporting tools. How do you uh, modernize your concepts or warfighting war uh, strategies? But the fundamentals are not going to change. The arms that you were mentioning, I think they will incorporate these technologies like the warfare, the way the warfare has evolved over a period of, of the last many ages. Mm -hmm. These tools supplement. They would bring in new ideas. The fundamentals are not going to change. On uh, cyber, again, that's a technology where leading countries or the major powers, they have an advantage over the developing. So for the developing countries, probably there's not much space or uh, to share the resources to something. Uh, which they consider as essential. So if you talk about India or Pakistan, or Pakistan uh, specific, in the overall security, once you're talking about what kind of uh, gadgets are required to fight or prepare hmm. for a war, you can share as much resources as practical, but you cannot entirely shift the focus on something that now cyber warfare is going to be nest. So let's forget about all other things and start focusing on cyber. But this doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything. We have to. Uh, and in cyber, um, as I understand, uh, I'm not a uh, very technical person like you, but I think in cyber, uh, there's an advantage also Sir. that you don't need uh, infrastructure or industrial base to get some mm -hmm. technology. You could have certain individuals who can give you solutions at a very relatively lesser cost, and you can incorporate those solutions whatever you are doing in your uh, daily lives or in your military planning, and you can have similar kind of results. At minimum, what you can do is you can have very cheap solutions to at least protect yourself from cyber attacks from the outside. Indeed. So what matters most is that you don't have to invest very heavily in these technologies, but you, have, you can invest in human resource who can give you these kind of solutions where you can probably uh, compete with the major powers. Mm -hmm. For now, there's a lots of gap between the developing countries and the developed world. But with the advent of these new technologies, this gap is also reducing. So that's also an advantage also. So we just have to focus, use resources mm -hmm. optimally, focus on human resource, and probably you can get better results instead of thinking about that warfare is going to But I can also refer to this global thinking. Probably it was the last DeVos conference uh, international Sir. meeting that happens every year. The three main threats that they talked about was uh, climate, cyber, and the pandemic. So cyber was already happening. Pandemic has happened. Uh, so next major threat probably is climate. 
but that's a different topic from our indeed indeed that's a very important point you made sir that uh, uh, the post covid environment would not necessarily prompt uh, a major rethink on uh, prioritizing uh, support for various combat arms or other services but you've made a very interesting point that the capabilities uh, the technologies like uh, cyber enabled services they will actually be incorporated within the uh, existing arms and services to better complement their functionality in the battlefields very interesting point sir and sir um my uh, next and last question for you is this is something which is obviously your area of expertise and uh, this is one of those uh, prime questions which i always try to keep at the last um sir will nuclear deterrence retain relevance in the south asian strategic stability paradigm post covid or uh, th this is something which a lot of analysts have been wondering about over to you sir yeah thank you uh, this is a question that uh, whenever i hear this question and i see on social media and also people writing about this fascinates me because we have a general tendency of some whenever something happens people start questioning whether deterrence is relevant in this environment this particular environment i'll just just give you an example of sir last year's the february uh, 2019 example where both india and pakistan engaged in surgical strikes against sir. each other many people talk about the relevance of nuclear deterrence uh, because we only see nuclear deterrence as something where you use weapons against the earth but nuclear deterrence has much more broader scope it's a psychological uh, thing or you use or you are playing with the minds of the adversary that you can use nuclear weapons against Uh, the adversary under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily. You are talking about that you are you are going to do under uh, uh, you are going to use nuclear weapon. The threat of use of that nuclear weapon is more important. And how credible that threat is, how better you are able to communicate to the adversary. So that's more important. So it has a psychological dimension that many people miss out. Mm -hmm. They just see nuclear. kind of exchange of nuclear weapons and the world is going to be destroyed and why nuclear deterrence is different because the kind of destruction it can cause and that's why it deters the adversary also especially if a relatively smaller country like pakistan uses this threat of retaliation against a relatively major uh, bigger country like india which has conventional advantage so it's more to convey your resolve and how well you are able to you're not just talking about if something happens we will use nuclear weapons and indeed indeed concept so you have to see the uh, dynamics of deterrence how it works and why it remains effective as of now and most likely uh, in the foreseeable future because there is no other weapon that can create that kind of fear in your adversary that under certain circumstances if, if these weapons are used these could lead to uh total destruction uh of the adversary mm -hmm. so that's the fear of the fear of use of nuclear weapons yeah in future if there is a technology which can replace nuclear weapons yes then one can uh, one could probably argue but that's a future we are uncertain about uh but in terms of pandemic yes it's a major global disaster but it is going to go 
uh, away eventually. And the world is going to uh, go back to the normal uh, business as we have already, uh, we are already seeing some uh, major powers indulging in kind of point scoring, blaming each other. Mm -hmm. or some uh, states also uh, dealing, uh, continuing with their military businesses also. So that's, that's my point because we have to differentiate between these, these two things. Whatever is ha has happened post-World War II, Lots of events happened, 9-11 happened and things like yes. other, other major events. Uh, nuclear deterrence never lost its relevance. It is going to be uh, going to remain relevant for the future. Especially more important for the countries that are unable to compete in or uh, conventional military domains and they continue to face existential threat from their adversaries who are relatively bigger and have uh, bigger military. So for them, the probably uh, use or utility of nuclear deterrence is going to increase because post-corona mm -hmm. countries like Pakistan, they will have to take into consideration about other security needs, the non-traditional security needs. So if you have limited resources and you have to cater for conventional needs also and unconventional like non-traditional security needs also in the future because there is going to be a problem. Absolutely. So, so what do you do? So your military budget is sane. So what do you do? So you rely more on your deterrence to prevent that outbreak of war and while diversify your resources for human development or for future such non-traditional uh, non security needs. I can't hear you. Are yes, you... sir. Uh, could you, sir, repeat the last line, please? Yeah. Oh, the last line or the about, comment about your question? Uh, or... Sir, your last statement, it was inaudible for a short while. And uh, the last time well, you mentioned about uh, that we'll have to invest in uh, human uh, uh, development towards non-traditional security uh, threats. How to manage that? Yeah, no, what I was saying was for countries like Pakistan, which have limited resources yes. to spare for uh, security needs. Now, there would be pressures on the governments to work more on non-traditional security issues, human uh, security, and to counter or cater for future pandemics or such kind of thing, to invest more on health facilities. So. It would be quite difficult for the government to spare more resources for military once the threats, the other threats are seen as more immediate and uh, something mm -hmm. that uh, the government said. So if you have a fixed pool the, of resources, so you can't spend more on something, uh, which probably there would be uh, lots of criticism also. So in that uh, scenario, of the uh, countries like Pakistan that continue to face existential threat and have limited resources, mm -hmm. probably their reliance on nuclear deterrence would increase, mainly to prevent war with its adversary, which is 
trying different strategies or building its military to fight a limited war or the all out war with Pakistan. Yes. So your reliance on nuclear deterrence would increase while the resources which are made available by not increasing your military spending, probably that would be uh, required to be on for additional security issues, including your health, education, and other needs. Yes, sir. Uh, this was indeed um, uh, very interesting. These were some very interesting comments, and it was a profound perspective offering valuable insights for our listeners into the post-COVID operational environment. I'd like to once again thank Dr. Adil Sultan for his time, and we look forward to having you on the program again, sir, inshallah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this special guest talk on Pakistan Geostrategic Review. Thank you for tuning in. And please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share your feedback through our Twitter handle, which is PGR Podcast. Or you can also email us your feedback on Review at protonmail.com. Thank you very much for tuning in. And thank you once again to Dr. Adil Sultan uh, for uh, joining us. Assalamu alaikum and Allah Hafiz.